0: Father, we thank you for freedom to gather and meet this evening. We thank you for your word open uh, for us to read. We ask, please, for your help, not just to listen to your words, but to believe what they say and to live obediently by them that we might come to know the real and certain hope that only Jesus can give in life today and in death. In his name we pray. Amen. I want to speak this evening about fear and hope, fear and hope. When was the last time you felt alone, afraid and desperate all at the same time? Alone, afraid and desperate. Can you think of the circumstances that led to that? Perhaps it was in the past sometime, uh, a long time back. Perhaps it was recently. Can you remember the circumstances? Or can you think of what sort of circumstances would create that reaction and response in you now or sometime in the future, being uh, alone, desperate and afraid? Chapter 28 in 1 Samuel is described by some as one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. But I think that where it shows a man who has lost all hope, it can help us to have real hope in the face of real fears. That's my prayer for us this evening, that from this portion of God's Word, we would find real hope in the face of real fears. In chapter 28, as we start, we come to Saul, and I've put in my notes here a description of Saul. He is desperate, alone, and afraid. Desperate, alone, and and afraid. We're looking at verses 1 to 6, first of all. Saul is Israel's king. Uh, he's uh, on the throne and he's leading his people into battle with the Philistines. And this is reminiscent of a chapter earlier, chapter 17, when the Israelites faced the Philistines and the giant Goliath. And on that day, David, the shepherd boy, came to the rescue and faced Goliath. David, just before the battle, had been secretly chosen as God's anointed king. And on the day of the battle, he faced Goliath, he defeated Goliath, and he delivered the Israelites from the hands of their enemies. Now we're here in chapter 28 on the eve of another battle with the Philistines, and David is not there. In fact, the start of chapter 28 is a bit confusing because it tells us that David is actually with the Philistines. Now how much of that Saul knew and understood may have added even more fear to Saul if he heard that news We're left in suspense by the writer because we won't hear what happens to David until we get to chapter 29. So, you're going to have to come back next week. But now we fast forward in time to the eve of the battle when the lines are drawn, and we find out what's happening in the Israelite camp. And we have this reminder that not only is David not there with Saul But Samuel, the Lord's prophet, he has died, and so he's not there with Saul to help him. Samuel's not there. David's not there. Saul has pursued David relentlessly in the chapters before this. He's driven David away out of jealousy and hatred. He's made David uh, his enemy, Samuel's not there, and it seems that God is not there either, because it says that there was no guidance from God when Saul sought the Lord. In verse 6, the Lord did not answer him, not by dreams or Urim or the prophets. There was just silence before the battle. Israel's greatest enemies, the Philistines, have come to fight Saul is desperate. Saul has an army, but he is alone very much, particularly when there's no answer from God. Saul is alone. And verse 6 tells us how he is on the inside. As he sees the army, Sorry, verse 5, as saw, saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He saw with his eyes, and in his heart, he trembled. He was terrified in his heart. In other words, there was no trust in God. There was no confidence before the enemy. Desperate, alone, and afraid. I still remember feeling this way on my first trip to London from Scotland as a 10-year-old on a school trip for the week and we ended up going to Hampton Court Palace and there our teachers thought it would be a great idea to let us run around the grounds and if you've been there you'll know that there's a giant garden maze and I've told some of you this before I got lost in that maze that day. 450 miles from home in England a 10-year-old by himself In that maze, I was desperate, alone, and very afraid until a teacher rescued me. You know, you can feel that way when you're a kid, but big kids can feel that way too in life today. Certain circumstances that will make our hearts tremble, the fear of death, illness, COVID, job security, security in a relationship or not having a relationship, the fear of people, the fear of not being in control of our destiny. I wonder what makes us feel desperate, alone, and afraid. On those occasions, It is truly wonderful for the follower of Jesus to know that they are not alone in life. To be able to pray to the God who made everything and say, our Father, and to know that he is there and that we are not alone. Or to take the words written by King David in the Old Testament in Psalm 23 and to be able to say whatever they're facing in life, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me. He guides me. How does David go on? Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. What wonderful assurance. But I don't think King Saul could say these words that night. There was silence. He was alone. He was desperate. He was afraid. For King Saul, all he could say was, The Lord is not my shepherd. I walk through the darkest valley, and you are not with me. I am alone. What a terrible place for King Saul to be in. What a terrible place for anyone to be in, in the darkest valley, and to be alone, desperate, afraid. That's how we can describe Saul in these opening verses. But then in verses 7 to 14, we can see that Saul stubbornly refuses to obey God. That's what I put down in my notes for my my second heading, Saul stubbornly refuses to obey God. You might say, well, hang on, was God not silent? How was He refusing to obey God. But it comes out in these verses with this little trip to find a witch. In verses 14, Saul knew the words of God's law. He knew what God's law said in Leviticus and Deuteronomy about seeking out a medium or a spiritist. Saul was doing something in these verses that he knew was forbidden in God's law, a law that he knew all about because, as the writer tells us at the start of this section in verse 3, Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. This episode now shows God's king disobeying God's law as Saul seeks a witch to help him. He wants a medium to consult the now dead prophet of the Lord, Samuel. And this episode exposes not just Saul's spiritual state, but something of the spiritual state of the land at that time, because it seems that despite having put the mediums out of the land Saul seems to have fully expected that they would be able to find one. And when he asked them, they seem to know where to go to find one, and that there's still one operating. What unfolds leaves us in no doubt that Saul is driving what happens. Notice how this is all his idea. He's even willing to take the risk of traveling north, which by this time meant he would journey through the Philistine line to secure this divine guidance. Notice how when the witch cautiously refuses, Saul encourages her to keep going. And he even swears in verse 10 by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. And when she recognizes him, he assures her of no consequences. This section is full of irony. He's so desperate for guidance from the Lord's prophet, he's prepared to disobey the Lord's law. And if you've been following through 1 Samuel, this has been a constant theme in Saul's reign, a stubborn refusal to submit to the Lord's will. Saul has been warned about the requirements of being king. God's king isn't free to live as he chooses. None of God's people are. Let me illustrate it like this you you you're not a great swimmer but you want to go for a swim that could be in the heath in the ponds cold day but some do it or it could be rough waves at the seaside but either way you go for a swim you're a weak swimmer and you have to be rescued and pulled out by the lifeguard the lifeguard says that's enough for today you need to sit down and rest What does the lifeguard think if he sees you 10 minutes later getting back up and plonking back into the sea or the ponds? He thinks you haven't understood what you've been saved from. You've been saved. I've rescued you. You're no longer free to live as you want. That is danger. Stay away from it. God's people who have been saved by him are not free to live as they want, ignoring his word. But do you see how how Saul does that? Do you see how he disobeys in these verses? How he even justifies his disobedience. Notice how when the witch is fearful, Saul's not. He doesn't fear disobeying God. These are bad signs for Saul. They're bad signs for anyone who calls himself a believer, but ignores God's Word. We need to pause just for a moment and ask ourselves, how are we responding to God's Word? Are the traits of what we see in Saul in us? We might like to think that God is silent and not speaking, not guiding us, but the words that we have in the Bible What he said in the past is what he is still saying today. That's true about how to be saved. We need to trust in Jesus. But it's also true about how to live as his saved people. What we need to know has been given to us in his word. And so, It is by hearing and obeying the words of the Bible that we live as his people, and so we need to ask, how are we responding to God's Word? Is there an area of life, an issue, a circumstance where tonight we perhaps know that we are stubbornly disobeying God's Word and continually justifying our disobedience. That's what Saul was doing. Tonight, he is not an example to follow. He's a warning for us. Saul stubbornly refuses to obey God. That's the second thing that we see. The third thing is this. Saul is condemned to death. In verses 15 to 19. When Samuel is brought up, he's not happy, and Saul explains why he wants to hear from him. And in verse 16, Samuel says this, "'Why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what He predicted through me.'" In other words, Samuel had already said these words to Saul earlier in the story. He had told him what comes in verse 17, the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors. And now Samuel reveals the identity of that neighbor to David. Now, if you've been following the story, it's fair to think that Saul had already joined the dots with his hatred of David. So in many ways, Samuel's message is a repeat of what he has already said. He explains, verse 18, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. But then in verse 19, there is fresh news. The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. These words, not what Saul wanted. Saul is condemned. Yes, Samuel here highlights one particular disobedience to do with the Amalekites, but we know that this has been a settled pattern in Saul's life, highlighted again in this episode, in this chapter. For his continued disobedience and refusal to submit to the Lord's will, for this rejection of the Lord, judgment would come swiftly to Saul. Saul is condemned to death. And then in the last section, verses 20 to 25, Saul is without hope. Immediately, verse 20, Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and night. Saul is struck down and filled with with fear. He is terrified because of Samuel's words, weak and feeble and utterly dependent on the kindness of a witch is God's king. He sits down to eat a meal fit for a king, but clearly he is not fit to be king. How would it taste, that meal, knowing that tomorrow you will die have you ever tried to eat a meal with incredibly terrible or sad news hanging over you or in your heart? How did it feel? He eats and he departs into the night. I wonder what do you think is the tone and feel of these final verses? want to suggest it's desperately sad. Saul was afraid at the start of the Philistines, but now for Saul it's worse than before because it's clear that God is not with him and all hope has gone. Saul is a man without hope. I've been wondering what he can do now to have any sort of hope. Leaving and before the battle the next day in that short period of time, knowing that time is running out, what could he possibly do? And the only thing I can see and conclude is that he should seek out David somehow, the Lord's anointed. And make his peace with David and be reconciled with David. The chapters have been showing us that it's the Lord's plan to end Saul's reign and to establish another king, King David. And when we've seen that in 1 Samuel, David has pointed us forward to King Jesus as the king that we need. He alone can offer real hope in the face of real fears tonight. I want to turn just briefly to some words of Jesus in, in the New Testament in Luke chapter 12. Do find these if you can. If you haven't got a Bible, I'm going to read them out for us. Luke chapter 12 And verse 4, Jesus speaking to his disciples, and what does he say here about fears? That's where we started this evening, fears that we have and face in life. What does Jesus say to his friends? He says this, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid you're worth more than many sparrows. Can you see what's being spelt out in these words by Jesus? I will show you who to fear. Fear God and his judgment would be a summary of the first half. That's what Saul did not do. He had no fear for God. And Jesus says, fear God and his judgment. He has the power to throw into hell. You see, Jesus makes it very, very clear here. Death is not the thing to fear. It's what comes beyond death. That is what we hear from the lips of the most loving man who ever walked the earth. It's what comes after death if we've lived A life rejecting God. But then in the second half of his words, he turns to his friends and says, my friends, you will be safe. Do not be afraid of hell. Here Jesus promises his friends real hope. By his death and resurrection, he can save sinners from hell, giving them real hope tonight. It doesn't mean that we will not face fears in this life, things that will make us afraid, but it means we can face them confidently, knowing that because of Jesus, we have real and certain hope, hope that goes through death, To life with him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to tremble before your word. We pray that we would not only hear it tonight but that we would obey it and believe it and that we would uh, know that Jesus alone can offer real hope and that because of him, we need not go out into the night without real hope. Help us to trust Jesus now and always. Amen.